Hey everybody, we have some big news. We've been asked to join a podcast network. That's right, we are very happy to be signing on with the brand new Recorded History Network. It's got some great other shows on it and it looks like it's going to be really cool. And this is a big validation for us because it means that we've been doing something right. Now, what this means for you is even more good, high-quality content coming your way because the income that this will bring will support continuation and improvement of the show. And while this does mean that ads may start appearing in the near future on episodes, you can still get the show ad-free by supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. And your monthly donation will not only get you the portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing, which we've been doing since forever, but you will also now gain access to all of our episodes ad-free. Look for that feature in the near future. Meanwhile, sit back and enjoy the first episode of our new series on Moism, brought to you by the Recorded History Network. Today's dead idea? Moism a philosophy from ancient China that was the chief rival of Confucianism in its early years, and which feels bizarrely modern in its ideas. In fact, it would fit right in with leftist progressive politics today, but this was, of course, 2,500 years ago in ancient China. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who is protesting at the Capitol today with a sign that says, Occupy Luoyang! <laughs> <laughs> Luoyang being one of the great capitals of ancient China. In fact, I think this is where, this is where we deserve the sound. <laughs> That's us. That's me getting the gong for such a terrible joke. <laughs> You officially lost a battle. Yeah, right. With me today is my co-host of the day, Andre Solo. I have been a card-carrying member of the Moist Party since I was 19. <laughs> my dad would not be pleased that I'm dealing with a Moist. <laughs> Most people aren't. <laughs> Our dead idea for this series was actually suggested by Andre. And when I started looking into it, I was actually super surprised by how modern their ideas sounded. Like, they would basically fit right into late 19th and early 20th century radical leftist movements, like socialism, progressivism, even communism, even though it wasn't exactly communism, they didn't have this kind of, like, idea of class struggle, but they were basically a movement that was pretty power to the people-ish and advocated a strong welfare state benefiting all people, not just the nobility, not just the wealthy, but all people, the peasants, the workers, the everybody. Yeah, and I have to say that I have had a uh, hard-on for this topic literally since college. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, well, I have. Uh, I was originally introduced to the idea of Moism in my college uh, Eastern philosophy course. It was mentioned for like three minutes in one lecture one day. Like we barely touched it. And the professor You barely said, touched it. Hard on. Oh, yeah. That's, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but no, I mean, the professor summed up, uh, you know, pretty simply. Uh, but I mean, he told us that there was this philosophy that was a pacifist philosophy in the warring states period in ancient China. Mm -hmm. That's not 100% correct, but that's kind of the basics. And he said, and not only that, but because they were against uh, aggressive warfare, they ended up becoming experts in defensive warfare and trap making. 
right. so much so that they would be smuggled into cities to help defend cities. Yeah. And this was such a cool, zany idea. Like, you're pacifist, but you're sought out to defend cities that I've always wanted to learn more about it, and I've never really had a good reason to do so. Yeah. Uh, and you've had now. blue balls for, like, going on a decade now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just lusting after Mo, Grandmaster Mo. Yeah. All right. Very good. <laughs> So obviously not pacifist completely because no. they did fight just only in self-defense. Yes. Right? Yeah. And that was part of their philosophy. And there's a whole bunch else too. We'll all get into that today. But, but yeah, so Andre suggested this topic. Sounded super interesting. Let's do it. So first, before anything else, I want to open with a scene, a super brief role play. Not like a big, long, this is just like super, just brief role play. I cast yeah. magic missile. <laughs> magic rocket magic. in ancient China. Yeah. <laughs> magic tiger rocket. <laughs> uh, so just, just, to, just to put us into the time and place, right? Okay, so we're going back to Warring States China, which was the 4th century BCE, roughly the same time in world history as Socrates and Plato going on over in Greece and Siddhartha Gautama, that we all know of as the Buddha, over in India. They're living roughly at the same time. 4th century BCE, Warring States, China. Imagine that you are a trader coming into town. One who trades, not, not someone who betrayed my country. Trader. Yes. Yes, trader, merchant. You're damn right. <laughs> and you are seeking refuge because along the road you spotted an army Ooh. that was marching this way. And they would have confiscated your wagon of goods for sure. The merchants enjoyed the least respect of any of the social classes in your society at this time. So they would have confiscated your goods. And you've already given up way too much to armies that you had to pass through. And at this point, your stomach is rumbling because you've got basically nothing left to go on. And all you're looking for is like the nearest walled city to protect you from this army and Maybe if you're lucky, get a little ball of rice to eat. Hmm. So you hurry, 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 and you manage to make it to the city. It's the nearest one, the only one you can get to in time to escape this army. Unfortunately, it's the one that the army is marching on. <laughs> but but you make it there. You make it inside the gates, okay? And you're looking around for, like, who should I tell, right? There's an army on the way. But unfortunately, your way is blocked by a gathering of people. Ooh. It seems to be that the crowd has gathered around two disputants in Ooh. the street that are kind of having it out somehow. And so you're like, what the hell, right? And looking at the, looking at the two disputants, the way they're dressed and everything, you it almost looks like it's some kind of like performance art or street theater because one guy's in this crazy getup and the other one's... It, I'll explain in a second. <laughs> but you're like, what the hell? There's an army on the march. And everybody's just watching, like, these performance artists. Hmm. Okay, so here's what you see. At the center of the crowd, one of the men is costumed in long, fine, impeccably clean silken robes of a distinctly archaic fashion hmm. that has not been worn in centuries. Whoa. I mean, you're thinking, like, when did the Renaissance Festival right. start? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen the posters or anything. And uh, this guy, he bows his head deeply, and he moves about with such articulated grace that it almost resembles a dance. Hmm. A highly ceremonial straight sword called a jian dangles at his side, sharp enough, but looking almost more like a stage prop in the context of the rest of his eccentric getup that he's got hmm. on. 
He says little, but what he does say is ornate and full of archaic words. Again, the Renaissance festival kind of like ye old this or that kind of, you know, like these and thous and all of that I like kind him of already. deal. <laughs> and his, his words are also full of references to a certain kong futsu. <laughs> and of course, listeners, I am struggling with the Chinese tones, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, Chinese is hard. Anyway, I'll explain the tones later. For now, the scene: Kong Futsu or Grandmaster Kong. Okay, and he says, Master Kong says, to obtain order in the land, the emperor should sit facing south. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it never hurts, and it often helps. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other disputant that he is facing off against, the other one is dressed in a coarse blue-gray work jacket and trousers, worn and faded from extensive work in the sun. His skin is darkly tanned from outdoor labor. He struts about with a jaunty gait and thrusts rude gestures at his opponent. <laughs> at his side is a simple axe, crude but effective, and from others in the crowd, you gather that he must have called out this more ornately dressed man in the street as he was passing and challenged him to some sort of dispute of ideas, it mm. seems. And the I crowd... think as a merchant who's also starving, all of this is just like, yeah, I'm you're... not having it. I'm just <laughs> right. like, how do I get past these guys right. and find a tavern? Right, right. You're trying to elbow your way through. Exactly. And it's like, exactly. they're like, <laughs> yeah. The crowd now blocks the other man from retreat and forces him to engage with the crudely dressed man. Mm. The one in the blue-gray work clothes shouts in a booming voice, using everyday words that anyone could understand, and a logic of practicality that makes sense even to you, a lowly trader. Hmm. Again, the lowest rung of society in ancient China. Right. The man jeers, sit facing south, you say. A fine bit of advice. Quite noble. Your master Kong is a wise man indeed. <laughs> He has you reciting the odes, performing fine music, striking great expensive bronze bells, and dancing about. But tell me, how does that feed the people? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I got my attention now. I'm All hungry. Right. Well, there's a pause in the conversation, and now, if you wish to act, you may. Uh, I, I would, like, ask for popcorn, like, buy some popcorn, but I have a feeling I don't have any any money left for popcorn, so... Yeah, no. Yeah. No, you could trade something Or for rice it. puffs or whatever. <laughs> uh, do I have anything left to trade? Uh, well, you've got goods, but you're, that's pretty much your livelihood. So I could trade, like, my cloth or whatever it is I've got to try to get food. Yeah, probably. You know, I think I'm just going to enjoy the show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, that's pretty much the show, because... Then, in just a second, just as the ornate man is trying to summon to mind exactly which quote of the ancient odes that he is going to retort with in some kind of highly referential comment, <laughs> <laughs> suddenly the scene is cut short by a cry from the gate that says, Army approaching! Ooh. And city guards rush past you toward the gate, carrying their kind of crazy, like, spear slash dagger axe thingies that they had, those kind oh, yeah. of old halberds that they had. And the local commander stops to glance at the two disputants, and he looks back and forth between them as if deciding, but it doesn't take him more than a split second to decide. And unhesitatingly, he points to the one in blue-gray work clothes and says, You, Moist, come and defend the city. Yes. And that's where we'll end the scene. Nice. Yeah.
So just setting up just like the dichotomy between these two philosophical combatants, right? The right. Confucians and the Moas were always at each other's necks, just, just digging into each other constantly. But when rubber hit the road and you needed defense, who are you going to call? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So our topic today is Moism. And the philosophy of Mo Tzu, again, okay, so the tones, right? So oh, wait, wait, so before we get into the tones, right? Yeah, okay, so okay. I just want to make, so it's it's called Moism, because yeah. it's named after the original scholar who founded it, whose yes, name, name was Mo. Mo Tzu. And yes. it's Grandmaster Mo, or Master yeah. Mo, Scholar Mo, yeah. and the Tzu is part of that title. It means master. So his name is Mo, and yeah. it's Moism. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah, so it's Mo. Right. Yeah. But, but yeah, okay, so normally... I don't like to make too big deal out of pronunciation on a podcast because every history podcaster does and it gets so old and annoying. Everybody's like, I'm so sorry I'm mispronouncing your language. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but I didn't take like 10 years of Chinese in college. So. Right, right, right. But the tones, well, I'll, I'll do my best to at least try them like the first time I say them, each, say each word. After that, screw it. Anything that comes out of my mouth, you're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> So, anyway, mozu is like mozu, basically, like that. That's how you're supposed so to say it. So the mo is going down a little bit. And mo is going down, is up a little and bit. then it's like okay for the tzu so, part. Yeah. So mozu, no, I don't know. <laughs> Again, screw it. Okay, okay, right, right. <laughs> screw it. All right, so our topic for today is moism and the philosophy founded by mozu. Master Mo, right? And Mozu lived just a generation after Confucius, and he propagated a counter-movement, basically. It's pretty much what it was. A counter-movement that gave Confucianism a run for its money, and we have an entire collected text of their the Moists' works called the Mozu that purports to compile the teachings of Master Mo, although it's probably more accurately seen as like a collection of Everybody who came after him who, like, added something to the tradition, and they just attributed it all to Master Mo. It's like the Gospel of Mo. Well, not exactly, because the Gospels... It, like, tells the life story of a... Yeah, it's ascribed to the Word of God, but then is said, oh, it's written by this one person. Okay, right, right, right. But it's... Anyway, claimed to be all written by Master Mo, or the words of Master Mo. Right. But maybe not. Yeah. Okay, so Moism, as a school of philosophy, lasted from... The 5th century BCE to the 1st century BCE. So that makes about, about 500 years-ish. Mm. Yeah. And burning hot and fast for about, oh, about, meh, about 400 years, depending on how you count it exactly, how much of each century. About 400 years before finally biting the historical dust, as it were. So it's no longer around today. And that's why we get to talk about it, because this is Dead Ideas. Today we're going to introduce Moism, founded by Mozu. Who some scholars today, like uh, Fraser, who's the main guy who says this, consider Mozu to be China's first true philosopher. Yeah. Even passing over Confucius right. to give him that title. Right. Yeah. Because Confucius, if you read like the Analects, it's like it's full of like nice aphorisms and stuff. Right. But there are no like reasoned arguments. Yeah. Like it yeah. kind of depends on what you view philosophy as being. If you take exactly. the view that, that philosophy is the the practice of using like rationed arguments to make logical cases for a yeah. for or against a proposition, yeah. that is what the Moist text does. It takes, okay, sh- how should we react to all these court musicians that are being paid for by our kings? And there's like a reasoned argument with you can argument that you can respond to. Right. Whereas Confucius is kind of like, here's a saying. 
Yes. Uh, which is beautiful. And there are some contemporary modern philosophers like Nietzsche who used aphorisms as well. Yeah, um, but it's a different say, kind uh, of... Yeah. yeah. If you like Nietzsche, then you'll probably say, well, Confucius was a philosopher. Definitely a philosopher. But, you know, right. if you're in the other camp. So, right. anyway, it's just saying how important that he was at the time and how unique he was at the time. And yet today he's barely remembered at all. Right. So. And what's interesting about this is that it actually makes the Moist text like kind of boring to read. <laughs> right. Because it, this was, on the one hand, this was a huge step forward for, um, you know, philosophic discourse at the time. It was this this new approach of like, we're going to present arguments. But it was, it's like, you're the first person doing it. It's like the first CGI animation in movies was terrible. It was a huge step forward, but it wasn't good, right? Right. But everyone was excited because they're like, oh, I've never seen anything like that before. But like three years later, you're looking at it, you're like, why did I like that? So this is the lawnmower man of ancient this Chinese philosopher. Lawnmower. <laughs> lawnmower. <laughs> lawnmower man, yes. Uh, but no, so it really has this feeling of like, okay, why is this so repetitive? Right. You know, he, he makes the point and then he repeats the whole argument with like a different like little flavor and makes the same point, repeats yeah. it with a different little flair. Yeah. And eventually, of course, later philosophies, later philosophers yeah. got better at doing this. So mm-hmm. It's more streamlined. And it looks like they were maybe much more elegant or much better than Motsu. But in reality, they were just, they had this experience to build on. It, the other thing is, as we'll find later in our series here, that the Moists did not come from the aristocratic class for the most part. Um, they were much more simple in speech, and uh, that contributed, too, to a much plainer and more direct and more prosaic kind of way of arguing. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 We're and going to be avoiding some of the more boring passages in this and going only for, like, the real cherry ones. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the plan is that today we're going to introduce Moism, and then we're going to talk about the context of Warring States era China which is really going to set the stage for why, what they were reacting to, why, why any of this mattered to them at the time, and why they were coming up with these particular ideas. Then the next episode, we'll get into specifically the Confucians and the Moists and what was their beef, really. And then after that, uh, we'll get into the text of the Moza itself. Andre's got a whole episode coming up that he's just only going to talk about the military defense tactics, which we're really looking forward to. Yes. Um, Grandmaster Mo and yep. the Castle of Horrors. <laughs> yep. And uh, hopefully we'll fin- be able to finish off this series with a role play episode and, and then we're out. Yes. So that's the plan. But uh, as any good uh, battle tactician or strategist will tell you, that Surprise. no plan survives contact with the enemy. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. All right. So when I started looking into this at Andre's suggestion, like I said, I was captivated by how ancient and yet how modern sounding the ideas were. And they, like, for example, the Moas advocated ideas like universal regard for all people, where the government should work not just for the noble, not just for the wealthy, but for the benefit of all people. So not the, so for the 99 percenters and not the one percenters, right? <laughs> right. So the Occupy Liaoyang kind of gag was, you know, that's that they would have identified with the Occupy Wall Street movement, hmm. I think. They would have been for the 99 percenters. And the other idea also that war is wrong except in self-defense, I mean, it all sounds pretty reasonable to us today, right? But... At the time, in ancient China, both of these ideas were complete mindfucks. <laughs> like, he, hearing this, these kind of ideas as a person at the time would have been like, wait, wait, 
what? (laughs) Universal, impartial care for all people? You mean, don't put my clan first? Don't put my family first? This would have, it would have, it would seem like you're, like you're in Dungeons and Dragons and you encounter a chaotic evil character telling you that the morals of your society are completely wrong, right? It's just like, no. (laughs) Yeah. Because I think, I think we should point out that there is a sort of a different view of like protecting your own people first in the ancient world. I mean, today we at least pay lip service to the idea that, uh, you know, everybody should be equal and you should, you know treat your neighbor as well as you treat, you know, your own family and uh, the government should should look out for the interests of the small guy as well as the big guy. We at least say that even if we don't always do it. But in the ancient world, East and West, it was generally considered the correct and moral thing that, of course, you would look out for your own kin first and your own nation first. And everybody yeah. else was just kind of dog meat. Yeah, yeah. The kind of, um, you know, moral ideas that we have today had to be invented over a very long period of time. And it got started in this sort of era, but it took a long, many, many centuries, even millennia of maturation. So at the time, you say these most ideas to the average person, and he'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He'd, give you, he'd give you the different strokes reaction. Right. <laughs> and they could sound as crazy to a commoner who might actually benefit from them as they would to a noble person, because you as a commoner are used to looking out for the interest of your own immediate family or extended family uh, and above and beyond those around you. Uh, yeah, and the ruler as well would have been like, "Don't, don't do aggressive warfare." What? <laughs> what? I mean, how else am I supposed to establish renown and have my name spoken throughout the kingdom? <laughs> this is <laughs> it's what you do. This is how I do it? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like, well, what the hell? You yeah. take away everything that's important to me as a noble. So, and I think one like point of, of repeated contention in the Moas yeah. text is that you should be rewarding uh, officials and and a giving appointments based on competence. And uh-huh. that yeah, is yeah. good advice in, in one sense, but it's also, if you are the ruler, a big part of your power base comes from the loyalty of the people under you. And if, if all of your commanders and officials are people who owe it to you, that's good for you. Whereas just appointing the most competent people, whether they are particularly in your pocket or not, is good for the, co- the country, but not necessarily your own personal power. Hmm. Which is a point of, I mean, I, I think that would be a real sticking point for rulers saying like, no, don't, don't promote your cousin, your, your, your wife's husband, uh, your grandson, and all the people who are on your side, promote whoever is smartest. That would scare them. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I would say that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So first I want to begin by painting a picture of the controversy, the debate, the kind of petty back and forth that they got into in their early years. So. Hmm. What what was going on between the Confucians and the Moists and everything and like how they are really just kind of digging at each right. other here. And then we're going to go into the Warring States bit. So the Confucians were already established at the time that, yes. that Grandmaster Mo first started. Yes. Okay. This is early Confucianism before it really became a rigorous analytical philosophy. And before it was a big deal, right? I mean, this was not China's philosophy. Before it was philosophy. successful at becoming like yeah. a full like statewide kind of implemented philosophy. Yes. Okay, so the Moists were almost universally ridiculed. Almost nobody liked them, except for the Taoists. But the Taoists are... Who knows what the Taoists are thinking, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the Moists were just so damn rude and practical about things. Mm. I mean, they didn't do things the traditional way. And the Confucians especially hated them. And in the 5th century BCE, ancient China, uh, basically right after Confucius, and like I said, contemporary with Socrates in the West, Mozart and his followers got into a huge flame war with the Confucians, each spamming nasty Reddit forums and, you know, just like r slash philosophy or whatever, you yep. know, r slash mm-hmm. politics. 
and blogging about how stupid each other's doctrines were. So I just want to give a little taste of what that was like. So, for example, the great Confucian teacher, Mencius, <laughs> which we know him more, better, more as Mencius yeah. now today, writes about Mozart. He says, and, and here you have to imagine Mencius kind of like clacking away at his computer terminal. And he's got like a like a big gulp Mountain Dew and like yes. half a bag of Doritos like sitting on the desk. And he's like, and he and so he writes, the maxim of the Moists is universal love, a world of men without fathers. To know no father and no ruler, this is to be nothing but a beast. Oh, because like if you're not looking out for your family first, it's like you don't even have a father at all. Exactly. Okay, I see. Yes. Yeah. If it's universal regard for everybody, whether they're your father or not, mm. to him, that's just, that's no different from the animal world. Right. Yeah. It's basically, you're, it's almost like you're just treating your father like he's trash, like he's just a stranger on the street. Yeah, like a, like a stranger yeah. on the street right. is his point. That Now, that's a radical ca- exaggeration of what yeah. the Moist <laughs> yes. philosophy is, yeah. but that is that is how he was seeing it and what he's arguing against. Right, yeah. 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 It's kind of a straw man, but nevertheless. Right. In numerous passages also, Mencius speaks of Mozart in the same breath as another teacher, Yangtze, who taught pure self-interest. So he was sort Ooh. of a Nietzsche-like character, wow. or almost more like an Ayn Rand kind of character. Yeah. Yeah. And by speaking of Mozart in the same breath as Yangtze, he basically smears him by association. Wow. So, for example, Mencius writes, Yangtze's motto is act for oneself. If he could profit the world by plucking out a single hair, he would not do it. For Mozart, the motto is universal love. If it would profit the world, he would scratch his head bald and walk his heels off. (laughs) (laughs) And his point is that we should take a middle path between those two obviously absurd extremes. But basically, he links Mozart and Yangtze together in the mind of his reader, Hmm. portraying them as two extremes that are equally undesirable. Right. So Yangtze would be the extreme of self-interest, and yes. Mozart would be going, taking selflessness to such an extreme that it becomes unhealthy. Yeah, exactly. in his In his take. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Meanwhile, another great Confucian of the next generation after Mencius, a teacher named Shunzi, also no stranger to the flame wars of the ancient Chinese <laughs> political blogosphere... He's checking out the same, like, threads and message boards and stuff. And, like, this is still around. It must be sponsored by, like, Rupert Murdoch or something. It's just like... (laughs) (laughs) He wades in, adds another comment to that thread. And uh, he criticizes Motz's argument that large musical performances were a waste of public resources, benefiting the wealthy one percenters, but at the expense of the 99 percenters. Hmm. And so Shunsa says, I take it that Mozart's rejection of music will cause the world to be chaotic, and Mozart's advocacy of frugal expenditure will cause the world to be impoverished. This is not an attempt to slander him. It is simply that his teachings cannot avoid these results. If at his greatest Mozart had possession of the whole world, or if at the least he had possession of a single state, he would have people uncomfortably wearing coarse clothes, eating bad food, and though they might be sad, he would deny the music. <laughs> I guess, yeah, the, the tone in his voice, I'm reading into like the, like the, uh, like this, this Obamacare is going to be like, we're all going to pull the plug on grandma. Kind right. of that. Exactly. He's, he's trying exactly. to invoke that kind of a thing. Like he's going to deny a music. You know? <laughs> I have to say though, I mean, the, I generally am pro-moism. I've been discovering <laughs> as I research this and those first two 
Redditors. Uh, I did not impress <laughs> me, but this one, that's kind of true. I mean, he's a really, he, he really promotes a Spartan. It's very Spartan. Frugal. Yeah, yeah right. They, I mean, right. any any kind of money that's spent on what's purely ornamental or pleasurable is, is just a waste in his opinion. Yeah, there's no sense of like life being enriched by art. No. No, no. it's it's yeah. much more like you go to work, you feed your family. That's philosophy. Yeah, right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I think, I mean, it's... It, the, the context helps, right? Because uh-huh. he's in it's in a time period when a really very uh, wealthy, courtly class of aristocrats, sophisticated, upper-class thing, and they are putting substantial state resources into things like, let's have a concert, and let's have... You know, I just I just picture the Chinese equivalent of, like, the, the giant parties in ancient Rome, where you're like, let's have a cake that has live doves inside of it, and et cetera, et cetera, right? So he's saying, like, I, mean, I don't know that he would be against, like, you have a fiddle in your house, and you play music when you're sad. He's against, like, let's spend state money on huge, overpriced extravaganzas that is that is what the truth of the matter yeah. is yes but that obviously right. he's not saying that part because he yeah. wants his his reader of to course. think he's against all, all music. music he's gonna he's gonna take away your fiddles you know right. it's like he's gonna go into your house and take away your guns he's gonna, <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna show up and take away your fiddle yeah yeah and I, I think that's also i mean that's kind of fair though because yeah. he he never in his text like never does does this entire document say like some music's okay, or playing music can be pleasurable, mm-hmm. just don't spend a lot of state money. He just basically says, like, let's get rid of music, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, to, to finish out the, this Reddit comment here. Right, right. So, Schunze, he concludes by, by, like, being like, if Mozart had his way, he would do this, and then he would do this, and it gets more and more exaggerated every time. <laughs> and then he finishes with this following. Is it Hitler reference? No, oh, only, <laughs> if only. But here's what he does say. He finishes with this self-satisfied flourish. He says, and so the whole world would be as though burned up or scorched. Wow. <laughs> so that's, like, wow. that's the equivalent of a Hitler reference, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's yeah. that's the kind of blog posts that are smearing the most at this time, right? Yeah. Okay. Do but, they have their best bloggers like firing responses back? Oh. Oh, yes. I can't wait. I can't wait. Who do you think started this Reddit forum? Did Mozu start it? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, okay, so before either of these writers was, was around, the Moists were around, and the text the Moza has two whole chapters called Against the Confucians, part one and part two, one of which is lost. But right. here's from part one, or whichever part it is, that, I don't know. But here's from one of them. They, the Confucians, use various elaborate rites and music to delude people. They use prolonged mourning and false grief to deceive relatives. They believe in fate and accept poverty, yet they are arrogant and self-important. They turn their backs on what is fundamental and abandon their duties, finding contentment in idleness and pride. They are greedy for drink and food. They are indolent in carrying out their responsibilities and falling into hunger and cold. But when endangered by starvation and freezing, they have no way of avoiding these things. They are like beggars. They hoard food like field mice. They stare like billy goats. They rise up like castrated pigs. When a gentleman... Nobody likes a castrated pig. <laughs> when a gentleman laughs at them, they angrily reply... Useless fellow, what do you know of Confucius? Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah, so he's not pulling any punches. And also notice in that passage, like, it's basically all just just very basic digs that it's not yeah. even about... Like, this even... is not one of the sections that's, like, reasoned philosophical yeah. arguments. Yeah. This yeah. is just an ad hominem attack. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the Moists were by no means innocents in this flame war. They were, yeah, they were very much, they were both trolled and trolls. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the Moists and the Confucians went back and forth like this, each of them painting the other as complete idiots and constructing straw men to argue against, getting likes from their own followers and constructing echo chambers around them. Basically, talking past one another like every political conversation ever. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> folks, it's been around for 2,500 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, eventually, the Moists lose out in this flame war. They didn't have very many allies, apparently. And like I said before, the only people who really liked them at all were the Taoists. But no surprise, they're the Taoists. <laughs> they were the, they're the, they, it's almost like they, the Taoists enjoyed being thought of as the crazy ones because they kind of cultivated that image, right? But, well, and they didn't pursue a lot of political power, right? Well, they, as a, they made a point of not pursuing right, political exactly. power. Yeah. But they, actually, they apparently admired how batshit crazy the Moists could be. And the Zhuangzi uh, describes their manner of dress approvingly. This is a Taoist text, though. This is a Taoist text, right. yes. So r slash Tao. Yeah, r slash Tao. Many of the Moists of later ages wear furs and rough clothing, clogs and grass slippers, never resting day or night, taking self-sacrifice as the highest. And they say, one who cannot do this is not following the way of the sage king Yu and does not deserve to be called a Moist. They press each other forward in self-sacrifice until there's no flesh left on their calves or hair on their shins. Wow. So, without getting into too many of the actual nitty-gritty details of what the Moists believed and stuff, that gives you a, you know, a fairly good initial taste of what the Moists were like. They were very radical, very uh, practical, very like, you know, do what's good for the people, no frilly-nilly waste, no, no music, no elaborate funerals, no all of this that's just a waste of resources. Right. Skip the halftime show. Get right to the football. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Accurate. Yeah. So at this point, I want to I want to open it up to questions. I mean, we've gone through a lot here and there we could unpack it to to no end. Right. But right. I, is there anything that you want to ask about right now, Andre, that that's just like, what was that? I mean, I don't right. Get it, so I, mean, I think we should dive into like what were some of the core tenets then of Moism? Right. Right. Well, okay. Yes. So I don't want to make it last too long. So I'm just going to do it super condensed, right? As I understand it, all of their ideas basically revolve around the core idea that you should always be working for the benefit of all people. Yes. Not just one class of society, not just your family, but all people. Yeah. Like the whole society. That's where their idea... Well, that is basically their idea of universal regard. That's where I see their idea of no aggressive war coming out of, because they make many arguments that it's really just a waste of resources that may benefit the ruler, maybe, but for this reason and that reason, actually not really, but they think that benefits them. But in any case, for 99% of the population, war just makes life shitty. So right. don't do it. Yeah. Right. And the the best that you can do is defend against the shitty people who are trying to, you know, wage war. Right. So that and then like all the frugality stuff comes out of that same core idea as well, because like we've mentioned, waste 
is a something that could be spent like all the money that goes to like the huge expensive gongs for the orchestras for the music and all the stuff that's spent on costumery for you know dance and whatnot and you know just all this all this luxury stuff they see that it's just a waste of resources that could be spent feeding the people you yeah know, right. and 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 just making life better yes. for everybody so I see it as somewhat comparable to like like a Cold War kind of analogy where you've got America where you can live in really nice apartments if you want to and you like go see a show. But at the same time, there's also a lot of wealth concentrated in like the upper crust. And sometimes life could be very shitty for those on the bottom rungs of society. Hmm. Whereas, say, in the Soviet Union, they at least made an attempt to even out the wealth they didn't quite succeed at that but no, but yeah. but but they made an attempt right but as a consequence like also you look at like their housing that like kind of soviet era like concrete just like live right. in a pillbox kind of I mean, everybody was issued it, a house but it was not a great house it's very basic yeah and i think that moza would have been like yeah that's yeah, what it great. should be like yeah <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's, that's wasting He still would have been very upset about the extravagances of the upper-level party officials. But yeah, I think yes. he would have looked around and been like, yeah, this is progress. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's... And I want to separate that for a second because yeah. I think that that would definitely work with, with Mo... I mean, if he walked into that uh, Soviet-era world, mm-hmm. he'd, he'd approve. But there is no element of this, like, let's forcibly redistribute wealth in right. Moism, and there's no element of a planned economy. He's not... Right anti-capitalist per se or anti-free trade yeah there's no class struggle right there was actually a philosophy at the time called the agriculturalists that did think that oh, we should get rid of all class distinctions how long did they last uh it's it they, they're almost never mentioned and it was hard to even find much about right. them it's hard to know how long they lasted right but we might get like, into a little like bit some later. some sub-subreddit that's just like that yeah, yeah. where the, the Confucians and the yeah. Moists agree on one thing, yeah. which is like, we got to get rid of the agriculturalists. Like, yeah, exactly. they're a problem. There is actually one passage that I think is probably Moza talking to an agriculturalist Ooh. and explaining why he's, like, his way of life of just everybody just farming is a stupid idea. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we might get into that when we get to the roleplay episode. Nice. We'll see. And that's the one thing I would add as well, is that when we consider this Moist philosophy, mm-hmm. it does seem strikingly modern in many ways, as we've mm-hmm. discussed. But I think even when we talk about how it was very grassroots, the Moist tended to be kind of working class minded, very meritocratic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All these things. There is never a single point where he comes even close to advocating, say, revolution or armed insurrection against the upper classes. No. In fact, most of the text is dedicated to, it's, it's spoken as if he is addressing a ruler mm-hmm. or a baron of some kind. And telling them, basically criticizing how they're running things and saying they should run things differently and making rationed arguments on why that's in their best interest to do so. Yeah. So he was in favor of a, a top-down hierarchical society. He was not a revolutionary in that sense. So it's a little bit more ancient world than it sounds on a first glance. And they were not true pacifists. They just were against offensive warfare because it's wasteful and unnecessary and not virtuous. Right. But they were not against uh, capital punishment. They were not against defensive warfare. Yeah. Definitely not true dyed-in-the-wool pacifist. He was very much in favor of capital punishment, as we'll get to in the military defense Absolutely. episode. Absolutely. Yes. Heads are rolling. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, but that is a that is a very good transition point, though, to, to roll it back to the ancient world kind of mindset. Right. And that's what I want to do for the rest of this episode, is I want to really set the context of what Warring States China was like and how 
these philosophies emerged out of what they were thinking about at the time. So Moism came of age in a period that is going to be familiar to pretty much anybody who is big into like Chinese period dramas <laughs> or video games, yes. you know, the kind with like a lot of like top knots and like frilly ornate <laughs> armor and like swords that are as big as you are and you know, all that kind of thing. Right. Typically that's either going to be set in like the three kingdoms period, which was later mm -hmm. or else the warring states period. And right. we're going to focus on the warring states period. And so when we talk about that, we're talking about roughly 475 to 221 BCE. Which is kind of like the late Bronze Age. Is that right? I mean, they did have iron uh, mentioned in a lot of things, but... The Chinese got iron pretty early. Really? Okay. Yeah. It was something about the particular kind of iron that they, that they had. And it was at like a lower temp that, oh, that it melted yeah. at. So okay. they got like steel and stuff so pretty early. this is early. legitimate Iron Age. Oh, yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah I it. think so. Yeah. 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 And in any case, the, the style of warfare at this time is much more like Iron Age warfare. It's not chariots and stuff anymore. It's like okay. heavy cavalry and stuff. Yeah. Um, so anyway, there has, however, there's been an empire before and stuff. But right now, the situation is kind of like turning to shit, basically. Right. So let me set the scene a bit. Okay. So and also, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit okay. to say that there's going to be a skew on this particular presentation of what things were like. And it is, it is the skew that people of the time would have given, philosophers of the time would have given, except for the Moists. Oh, interesting. And then when in the next episode when we get to talk about the Moists themselves, we'll see their version of the, what the times were like. A little bit different perspective. Okay, so just I'm going to leave it with that teaser, but keep in mind this version of events is skewed in a in a way that the ancient Chinese would have skewed it. So, Warring States era of ancient China. This is basically a time when the glue of society had come undone. Hmm. Yeah. Previously, the Zhou Dynasty had ruled China for something like 800 years, and during that time, there were wars of expansion, but very few internal wars. There was a lot. Of, there was a long period of internal peace and stability, and people had gotten used to that inside China. And, but, but gradually, the problem was gradually power became decentralized until the point that the Zhou Emperor was really just a defanged figurehead and all the power was concentrated in the local lords. And as a consequence, they all kind of began to vie against each other for dominance. And you got a situation where dozens of small states were all attempting to gobble each other up. And the emperor couldn't really do anything about it because he was just a figurehead at that point. Point. Mm. Nobody was really listening to the emperor anymore. Right. So by the time of the writing of the Mozi, the text the Mozi, four big states had managed to emerge. And there were also little states remaining as well, but there were four like big players, right? There was Chu, Yue, Qi, and Jin. So those are the big players, right? And so you have to imagine like there's been this long like playoff season and now it's like down to the big, the last four teams <laughs> that are all trying to go to the Super Bowl and only one can be victorious. So this is the quarterfinals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. So that's basically what Warring States China was like. It was a time of severe competition hmm. in which the stakes were high and, you know, failure was death at the end of a sword, basically. So it was a time of uncertainty. You had armies crisscrossing the fields, eating up what little you had or burning it so that the enemy couldn't eat it. 
And just when you, as a typical, you know, commoner in ancient China, thought that things couldn't get any more desperate for you, you you were liable to get called up to fight for some local lord and probably die in some pointless battle over a patch of grass somewhere that mm. you yourself didn't even care about. Right. Right. So that was the kind of time that it was. But the people of Warring States, China, remembered another time before all this when the Zhou dynasty ruled and when it was relative peace and stability, right, like I said. And then before that, their, their histories told them of the Shang dynasty. And before that, the Xia dynasty, which we now think is probably mythical, might have been somewhere rooted in history. But anyway, they would have taken all this as actual history. Right. Right. So dynasty upon dynasty of stability. Now everything's gone to pot. Right. Yeah. And of course, as with most like kind of like golden era, lost golden age uh, yes. views, on the one hand, yes, it was more stable at that time. On the other hand, of course, it's become exaggerated. Oh, and people so look back so. with this longing at something that probably never truly existed the way yes. they imagine it. In fact, I would say it was idealized and romanticized to the extent that it's pretty comparable to a paradise. Wow. But not in the exact flavor of like the Judeo-Christian paradise. And the difference is kind of interesting. And it also really informs how they end up thinking about how to get back to paradise. Hmm. So I want to go back into the go into that. Yeah, please. Okay, so so the Chinese myth is basically about living in accord with Tian or heaven, a way of heaven. And they thought about heaven not quite like the Judeo-Christian God, kinda, but not really. Hmm. It was nature. In their mind, nature also had likes and dislikes built into it. So it was like a quasi-person. Right. Not like a full person, but somewhere between just the environment, the way we think of it now, and an environment that can say, you're living wrong. Hmm. Things are going to happen now right. that are bad because of the way you're living. It has sort of a way that it prefers things to run, and if you deviate from that, it will sort of snap things back toward it. Yes. Okay. But interestingly, it's not like... You get on the bad side of Tian, and then it's like, you're fired. Mm. It's not like that. Instead, they thought of it like natural consequences. Hmm. Like, if you put your hand on fire, you're going to get burned. Right. In the same way, it's like, if you rule poorly, your uh, dynasty is going down. Right. But I don't mean that as practical as it sounds. Right. Like, it just made bad decisions. It's more like you were immoral as a ruler, and then there's some cosmic force right. that somehow in a not quite faded but but almost karmic kind of way even though karma comes from indian culture sure sure almost like that kind of way things are going to happen that eventually is going to take your dynasty right. down like your lack of virtue by its very nature yeah causes this uh this almost not spiritual but this sort of uh this sort of intangible force to yes. to take you toward ruin Right, yeah. right. And we struggle for the words for it right. because we're not from that culture. It doesn't translate quite right into the way we think about things. Yeah. But right. that's how they thought about it. And they crystallized this into the doctrine of the mandate of heaven, which is the idea that so long as the current dynasty ruled, it enjoyed the mandate of heaven and heaven would keep it in power hmm. so long as it, they ruled virtuously. Right, yeah. But... As soon as they start to go down the wrong path and no longer live according to the way or the Tao, um, which is what Tao means, then there will be all these kind of like omens, like, you know, 
comets in the sky, famines, chaos, disorder, all these things that are signals from heaven that the current dynasty has lost the mandate of heaven, and now it is good and right for some other family to rise up who has the mandate of heaven and oust the current dynasty. Mm. That's the idea of the mandate of, of heaven. Yeah. yeah. And that's how people at the time thought about paradise, paradise lost, and getting back to paradise. Right. So... And also, we should specifically characterize this as a social paradise. This isn't like a paradise in another life. It's not like everything on Earth gets wiped out and then there's like a golden age of just complete different... You know, mm. It's it's an, a society that becomes, as a whole, like the ideal society you would want to live in. Yeah. Like if you were a peasant, you'd still be a peasant. Your job would still be farming. It's just that you would be rewarded properly. You Your taxes would be fair. You wouldn't be unnecessarily called up for military service for no reason. Um, and because yes. everybody was living virtuously, the earth would be fruitful and you, you wouldn't have too many bad years with your crops. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. But um, you were still people, the lowest rung yes. on the ladder. Yes. Yes. They, they didn't change their values as right. a consequence of it. Yeah. But it was the idea that things were going to be good. Right. Right. So you weren't going to have problems. The rulers are going to be just, and you won't. You just won't need to complain. Yeah, Everything right. will just kind of flow along nicely. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that's their idea of this social paradise. It's not like another life. It's not another world. It's right here and now, and that's what they were trying to get back to, and what they thought that they had had back in like the Zhou Dynasty and earlier, and what they're trying to revive somehow. And then, how do you do that? Well. The answer was easy for if you were a local lord, you'd be like, well, there's plenty of chaos and disorder and famine in the world. Right, right. Obviously, the current dynasty must have lost the mandate of heaven. Yeah. Somebody's got to, you know, take it and maybe it's me, mm. which is even more incentive for local lords to be like, hey, I'm going to throw in my hat in this great, you know, battle uh, royale to make it to the Super Bowl, you know, yeah. right? So, um, so that's one way, right? But there were people who were also more thoughtful about it. And who sat down and were like, hmm, how maybe we can live differently hmm. and through ideas get back to that paradise-like way of society, right? And uh, that is actually, I think, that, that, that pretty much gives a good character of, of what Warring States China was like at the time. Yes. So basically, to sum up, it was good. It got shitty. We want it to be good again. <laughs> right? Right. That's, that's the thought process going yeah. on. And I, I think I want to leave it there because we're, we're almost at time here. But when we pick up again, we're going to go into those more thoughtful people that we just mentioned. Beautiful. So the next episode, we're going to start off talking about the hundred schools of thought that developed in ancient China. And we're going to go deep into the Confucians, at least for the early Confucians. It's not going to be fair for what Confucianism became later when it became a rigorous analytical philosophy that, you know, you can argue with and stuff. But right. early Confucianism had a very different kind of way that it was right. being right. performed. So we'll go into that. And then we'll go into the Moists that were reacting against that and saying, that's dumb. Right. <laughs> Here's what we should do instead. 
and who who almost prevailed. There was a time yeah. when Moism was the the preeminent philosophy in ancient China. Uh, and was wait wait when? Well, not okay. No, sorry. There was not a time when it was like the accepted philosophy everywhere. But there was a time when the Moists were a bigger deal than the Confucians, and they were kind of pulling ahead for a while in that rivalry. Uh, and then it, it, it kind of the tables turned and they lost yes. out. And that's one of the things that's most amazing to me is that a semi-pacifist philosophy in the Warring States period almost became like the <laughs> philosophy of China instead of Confucianism. Maybe we should do like a uh, counter history or what do they call alternative history episode if I they had love it. succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like like most China today. Yeah. yeah. How, okay. So we've, we've got like, we've got 10 minutes left. Yeah. Uh, okay. Give me your imagined picture of oh, what... Wow. Uh, ancient China would have been like if the Moists had beat out Confucius and managed to implement their society, you know, across China. Right. Okay. Which at that time was not as big as China is now, but no, it's still no. pretty big. Still pretty big. Yeah. yeah and a big deal. Uh, and one of the more advanced civilizations of its time as well. Yeah. I mean, the East, it ma- mainly head by, headed up by China, the East was miles ahead of the West for most of world history. Yeah. Right. So, in terms of technology and complexity of society etc yeah for sure um oh wow okay so i think i mean the important thing to remember is that even if moism had won out and become the official philosophy of of the ruling class of china Mm -hmm. um they would have started to implement their policies but they would never just like every philosophy you can never implement them perfectly the way they were were envisioned right right yeah um so i i hmm, i could picture a china that would have been it would have gone one of two ways. It would have either been a, a very united China, mm-hmm. which would have had a, a really good chance at resisting outside attacks, mm-hmm. while potentially stagnating culturally. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, maybe continuing to have advances in engineering and things like that, but a lot of the uh, art and literature and musical developments that we think of as this rich part of Chinese history maybe would have been slowed down or not even have taken place yeah. uh, because of that, that was not considered valuable. Right. Um, and that's one way it could go. And if that was the case, I would love to see what would have happened with the various invasions that, mm-hmm. that either did come or attempted to come to China, uh, you know, from, from outside of China, because it would have been a very different nation they're attacking, mm-hmm. very unified. Um, but the other way it could go would have been kind of the way that communism tends to go where it just doesn't hold together because it's too crappy for too many people uh-huh. uh so i could also picture where if they had succeeded unless they tempered their philosophy substantially if they really tried to run the entire state the way that they talked about running smaller states or or cities um i think you're just asking too much of too many people and there's right. too many mid-level important people who have wealth uh-huh. who have some influence but who are not going to be down with living a fruit like a spartan frugal right. lifestyle yeah who would have a lot of potential to mess you up yeah, and to eventually have broken off or started, you know, wars or just overthrown or whatever. So I could also picture it have like had a a very brief flourishing period and then just kind of eating itself up from inside. So you're seeing that as kind of a prequel to Maoist China where like it started (laughs) off with the very Spartan kind of thing. And we've already, we've already given the caveats about how it's not really like communism, Yeah, but but there are interesting parallels, right? So it started off very Spartan, even to the extent of like only the blue gray, you know, kind of clothing that right. it's that Spartan, right? Yeah. Um, and, but then eventually, like, they just couldn't sustain it. And it was in the 80s, you had the Cultural Revolution, I think it was called, where basically even s- somehow you got a fair, like a free enterprise kind of market thing going on, even though it's still a communist country. And those things seem like 
polar opposites, but right. somehow it works. Right. And today <laughs> China's actually doing pretty good. Yeah. So yeah, I could imagine something like that working out where it starts off really radical, but then, you know, bit by bit changes are made and the philosophy is um, revised hmm. would be among the proponents or degenerate for those who are criticizing the, the changes. Um, and, and eventually you get to something that is more recognizable to what we see as, as what we find working in the world today, right. rather than being this idealized um, Spartan, like, no, you go to work, you go home, you do that the next day, that's life, and that's how it should be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that would have been really interesting, too, is the... I, I could, I'm going to say... I'm going to put this out there, all right? This is... <laughs> I uh, People can disagree, and uh -huh. if you do, let us know. But I'm going to say, if... Moism had become the main philosophy of China at that time period and lasted for any length of time. There is also a chance that um, what I'm going to loosely refer to here as like Taoist-ish uh, traditional Chinese spirit beliefs yeah. may have become one of the, the several most dominant world religions. And the Ooh, reason I say that is because uh, the even though the Moists were extremely... Um, progressive in many areas mm -hmm. uh they were extremely dedicated to tr observing the traditions around the spirits and mm -hmm. serving the spirits giving them offerings performing the the ceremonies mm -hmm. um and i know that the confucians are known for that but a lot of confucian ritual is dedicated to more social concerns right um whereas the moists really believed like no there's spirits in the mountains and rivers and yeah. we need to deal with them we need to talk to them yeah it's a very good point that we haven't hit on yet but we will get to in right. later episodes yeah, yeah. so i could picture that there would have been literal just... about it yeah super literal exactly yeah. that's a good way to put it yeah and so i could picture that there would have been a heavy like state driven uh apparatus pushing that you are constantly maintaining the shrines constantly maintaining this spiritual belief and that Every single person individually was expected to be pious because if you weren't, that was a potential source of disaster. Right. So that would have given you one of the largest and most advanced uh, cultures in, in the world for much of history. Um, then also having a very unified, very dedicated religion um, mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think... I mean, it's hard to say because there's definitely a strong religious history in China and all mm -hmm. kinds of beautiful traditions have come out of that. Yeah. But it's not like all of China had this one central like religion that they were all told to practice from the top down. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that that could have been like a nice contender with the Judeo-Christian religions and Buddhism and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think if yeah. Moza had his way, he would have been like. Yeah, no, everybody should just do what I say. <laughs> oh, yeah, it would have been very centralized. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, I think that would have extended to religion as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. So I could see that happening. Yeah, it just would knows. have been a very, a much uh, less ostentatious style of religion yes. than we're used to with, like, yeah. you know, giant pagodas and huge bronze bells. And, exactly. You know, They're going to use the discount been... gongs. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Well, there's just like one gong that's like shared yeah. between several villages. It goes on a circuit. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, speaking of which, to take us out of this episode, here we go. <laughs> and that's all you get. That's no more music. That's the only no, music. No more music. <laughs> all right, everybody. That's it for our episode today. Andre, thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Uh, we will be back next time with Andre. With Mo Moism. Mo Moism. Yes. Uh, next time, we'll talk about the Confucians and the other like philosophies that were contending at the time. 
and we'll get deep into the uh, Moas themselves. And if we have time, we'll start reading from the text of the Moza itself and look at their kind of like core ideas that earned them such scorn at the time. <laughs> yeah, so that's what is in store for next time. Meanwhile, uh, folks, if you like what we're doing, you can always support the show. $5 a month on Patreon gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you in your work jacket and trousers, <laughs> every bit as threadbare and worn as a most would have been. <laughs> <laughs> With no hair left on your calves. Exactly. No hair left on your calves because you're working that hard. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, www.patreon.com forward slash dead ideas pod. All right, everybody, we'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.